Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin, and my guest today I'm very excited about is Adam Rosenswag from Gehring and Rosenswag Associates, a firm dedicated to making contrarian bets in the natural resource sector. And Adam is without question one of the most respected voices when it comes to allocating capital into the energy sector. I was very excited to get him on the show today. We talk about the energy crisis in Europe. We speculate about who may or may not have blown up the Nord Stream pipeline. We covered supply and demand economics in the United States and the future or non-future for renewable energy and why renewable is probably a terrible word to describe those energy sources. As always, beneath this piece of content, there is a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. Hit that link, subscribe. I publish every Sunday. It's free and they absolutely love writing it. I share my biggest takeaways takeaways and action items from conversations just like this and plenty others. Here's Adam Rosenswag. Enjoy. All right, welcome back to the Jay Martin Show, and I'm joined right now by Adam Rosenswag, and I've been looking forward to this interview, Adam, so thank you for making the time. Oh, yeah, happy to be here. So let's start with uh, with Europe and the energy picture in Europe. From the context of two months ago, most of my guests were forecasting that this winter, countries like Germany, for example, would be forced to make a choice. They could either stay their hard line on the Ukraine-Russian conflict or heat their homes, but they weren't going to be able to have both. Now, has that situation changed given the increased reserves they were able to accomplish over the last couple of months, given the mild winter so far, it's still super early days, but has that outlook or situation changed at all from your standpoint? And did you ever agree with it, I guess, is a better question. Yeah, I certainly did. And I continue to, you know, I think the timing can be questionable a little bit. And the Europeans uh, did a good job at replenishing their natural gas inventories going into the winter months. Uh, but, you know, thank God they did because now they're in a little bit of a better spot. They're still unfortunately extremely weather dependent, right? So there's you have a range of outcomes in terms of uh, what weather and heating demand could be throughout the winter. And there's still an awful lot of those scenarios where things are very, very tricky for them to get through. But yeah, the base case has probably gotten a little bit better in the last couple of months because the inventories have gotten a little bit higher. So they're going into winter with slightly more gas than than people had expected, ourselves included. The question then is, you know, why? And, and I think the answer is sort of threefold, none of which really, uh, unfortunately, helps them out over the long term, but certainly will through the potential crunch of the winter. And for your listeners, I mean, it sounds like and viewers, it sounds like everyone, um, you know, has, has a little bit of a background here, but, but obviously natural gas is really seasonal. Uh, we go through the winter period and we demand more than we produce. And so we withdraw inventories, even if there was no Russian conflict, even in the United States where we have ample gas, we withdraw from inventories in the winter and we replenish in the summer. Uh, and I think that that's kind of a, a key point. People are saying, oh, you know, inventories are at 90 plus percent full in, in Germany and in other parts of Europe. So there's no problem. But they're normally that level of full. And we draw basically all of that down, uh, not entirely to zero, but this year might be different. So how did they, how were they able to replenish their inventories so well? Um, a couple different things. You know, first, they really did a, a quite a, you know, German you know, stoic uh, 
cutting of industrial capacity. Uh, so I think they're down 16, 17% on the industrial capacity. Things like ammonia, which is natural gas intensive, has been basically shut entirely through Europe, which means it's going to be awfully hard to get really good crop yields next year because that's where ammonia gets put into nitrogen fertilizer to go on crops and stuff like that. So they've done a first leg of shutting that down already. Second of all, they've been burning almost anything they can find. And the two most notable things, of course, are crude oil, where, where you've had gas to oil switching throughout Europe, probably added as much as a million barrels a day. The second was um, wood pellets, mostly coming from the United States. Mm-hmm old growth forests in the Carolinas. I mean, really quite quite horrible that that in this day and age, that's what we're, you know, resorted to do. And then the third is coal, uh, which, you know, had been long sort of left for dead. There's other stuff you'll hear about, like bringing back nuclear, but none of that's going to make any difference for this year or next year. Those are all longer term things. So you're burning a ton of coal, you're burning a ton of wood, you shut down industry. And then let's also not forget, we rebuilt a lot of inventories with Russian gas flowing. You know, it, it wasn't until recently that the Russians really turned the screws on the natural gas supply into Europe. And so it, with all of those things, we were able to bring our inventory or Europe rather was able to bring their inventories back up to a good level going into the winter. But if you look and you take Russian volumes offline through the winter, you're going to withdraw a lot of gas. You know, you normally withdraw a lot of gas. Now you're going to withdraw even more. Russia was 30% of the gas imports into, into Europe. So you by no means are, you know, out of the forest, but um, potentially the first crisis point um, is in better shape than it would have been a couple of months ago, which is amazing. I'm super happy. You know, I, I couldn't, couldn't be happier. It's, it's sort of funny. Like people almost say it like, well, you, I guess you were wrong. I mean, not at all. You know, they, they took these dramatic steps and, and now they kind of made it through this first pinch point, but by no means does that fix the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good way to look at it. Is there sort of past maybe the first hurdle or milestone, you know, we, we tend to get pretty immediate with our forecasts and like, you know, consequence of actions, whereas like this will last, this conflict will last longer than this winter and the energy crisis will last a lot longer than this winter. And this winter is going to last longer than November. So we're, we're hardly through that, you know, to just start. Do you, do you care to speculate at all, Rada? So talking about the Nord Stream pipeline, like, do you have any, do you have any thoughts on how that exploded? That you'd care to share with me? No, I have no idea. I'm not, you know, I'm not in the intelligence community and I, you know, everyone has views and feelings and things like that, you know, so the, the short answer is no. Um, one thing that I have heard and is now, um, I think was just came to light yesterday on Bloomberg was that the Freeport LNG export facility here in the United States that um, blew up back in, I don't know, May, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, that that was was likely just human error you know that they've been combing that with investigators ever since and there's been a huge amount of work gone into that but i think that's really coming out now that that was just you know bad dumb luck at a really inopportune time because that took two bcf a day of gas that could have gone to europe um and and would have helped either allow the europeans to keep their industry more open or else you know not have to burn so much wood and coal so that i think was just dumb luck in the case of nord stream it seems more deliberate than that um, you know, people obviously suspect that Russia did it. Russia suspects, and other people here suspect that that the West did it in a false flag attack. I have absolutely no insight there. But I will tell you something that as this energy market gets tighter and tighter and tighter, 
weird things like this are going to happen more and more and more. And I think that's something that people don't fully appreciate. Um, you know, they, they seem like completely one-off black swan events that have no uh, bearing or no rhyme or reason. But, you know, when the market gets tight, people realize that they don't have to do very much to really disrupt the markets. And, and a good example of that, you know, in the United States, we have something called the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And that Strategic Petroleum Reserve was put in place in the 1970s or just after when OPEC did this, you know, two times they used what they call the oil sword against the U.S. So first the U.S. supported Israel in the early 1970s, and then later uh, the U.S. did not stop uh, the Iranian revolution from taking place. So in both times, Saudi Arabia freaked out and stopped oil flowing into the West. And it had a huge impact, right? Gas lines, rationing, prices, recessions, the whole bit. So after that, most of the OECD countries got together and they said, look, we're going to have a strategic stockpile, strategic reserve. And that's going to make it really difficult for bad actors to try to mess with energy as a way of you know, tapping into our vulnerabilities. And the analogy that I like to use is that it's basically like if you start to lay siege on a medieval fortress, you want to know how much food they have in the fortress before you do it, right? Because if they're really well stocked, then it's going to just about kill you as well as, uh, you know, get get kill them as well. Whereas yeah. if they're completely tapped out, then they'll probably capitulate very, very quickly. And I think the same thing is true here. If you want to use energy as a weapon for most of the last 40 years, you had to really be willing to take a lot of pain in order to burn through all these strategic petroleum reserves. We don't have that anymore. We've, we've you know, released 70% of that into the market in the last six months. We're probably going to release the rest in the next four or five. We've become fully addicted to the SPR, so we couldn't even really, it'd be difficult to turn it off if we wanted to. And now we're like, we don't have that buffer anymore. And so I think you'll only see more and more one-off bad actor type things. You know, you go back only a couple of years now and um, the Houthi rebels in uh, Iran launched an attack on Saudi oil infrastructure, took out 3 million barrels a day, 4 million barrels a day capacity um, and, and oil traded down, right? And it traded down because we had all these buffers in place, both on the commercial side and on the SPR side. We don't have any of that anymore. If you were to do that today, oil would be pinned at 200 bucks tomorrow. And, and the reason I bring this up as it relates to Nord Stream, you know, the West thinks it was Russia. Strategically, that seems interesting because Russia has this card that they can play of turning off the gas to Europe. Once you play the card, the card's played. And so Russia, if they sabotaged that pipeline, they played that card and they didn't really get anything for it. Uh -huh. Now, was it the West? I'm not sure what the West would gain from doing that. You have to be really cynical and Machiavellian to sort of think of some really twisted kind of plot to do that. Um, and then the third option, though, which is more, most terrifying to me, it could just be a, a random third party. It could be you know somebody who has an agenda for whom that benefits them. Uh, and the idea is that the whole world is so vulnerable to these few choke points now. Yeah, uh, and they've been more vulnerable now than they've ever ever been. So I don't know who did it. I have no idea, but unfortunately, I would suspect that we will only see more and more of these black swan one-off events because the system's so tight. I suppose, yeah, it's in a fragile place. So you're right. You know, it doesn't take much. You know, your comment about Russia being able to tighten the screws is what prompted my question about care to speculate because to me it seems similar. It was like. The, the pipeline was a massive point of leverage that they had. Why would they give away their leverage by blowing it up? But 
again, like I, you know, I don't have the inside scoop on what's occurring. So, and, and, and I don't either, I don't either. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I think you have to be really, you know, fairly well connected and probably actually in intelligence to really have any senses to what, and I, I would you know, discourage people from listening to, you know, folks that, that claim to have the definitive answer there because how I have no idea. Yeah, absolutely. Now you mentioned you're projecting that the U S will continue to draw down the reserve potentially completely within four or five months. You know, if you were to try to put your your mind inside the mind of President Biden during this process, what's behind the strategy? Is it is it simply, you know, to depress gas prices in front of the midterm elections? But you're saying he's going to continue. So maybe that's not it. You know, what's what's behind the decision making to draw down this very important strategic resource? Uh, and is it necessary? Like, what's the consequence of not doing this right now? What's the downside of not drawing it down versus the consequence of not having it? In four or five months. Uh, look, I, I I think that the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has been providing over a million, close to a million and a half on a global basis barrels per day. So that's like the entire growth that you would get from the shales in a year. You get a million, right? So this, this is a big number. Yes. And even with that, inventories have basically been flat to coming down. If you, if you look at the total time, um, commercial inventories are actually down a lot. Uh, even with the SPR, if you look at the last six months, they're basically balanced with the SPR, right? So that would suggest to me you're a million and a half undersupplied on a true organic basis, right? If you took out this one-time yeah. thing, which is the SPR, what does it get you? I mean, yeah, clearly before the midterms, it helps to keep gas prices low. Looking out into 2023, you know, does it give the Fed a little bit more latitude when it comes to inflation and things like that with core inflation backing off a little bit? I mean, you know, I, I don't want to, tip my hand on my politics too much, but I don't think that there's a huge amount of sane or rational energy policy coming out of the administration. So what they're thinking is is honestly anyone's guess. Um, you know, maybe, maybe they're thinking that they can spin up more windmills and things like that. I, I don't really know. Uh, but what the world needs and what the energy industry needs, if you really wanted to talk about trying to fix some of these problems, um, it's really clear it needs more money being spent on oil and gas drilling. Um, you know, we haven't really grown production. Uh, again, the U.S. is disappointing now in the last three or four months. Our rig count is stuck stubbornly, you know, at, at 40, 50 percent below pre-COVID levels, uh, like 80 percent below the old highs back in 2014, but still 40 percent below pre-COVID levels. So, you know, you need to incentivize these guys to drill. Um, and and the administration and the policymakers are not doing anything, nothing to do that, right? If you look at all of their rhetoric, it's all about helping uh, the consumer, which does nothing for the energy companies, right? Subsidizing, uh, price caps, uh, cutting fuel taxes, banning exports, um, all these all these things, all this rhetoric helps for consumers in the short term, debatably, short term, yeah, none of it, none of it, none of it is an olive branch to the energy industry. And I think that's really key because when these energy companies look out and make the decision to drill, they're looking at a couple different things. They're looking at, you know, what opportunities do they have? Do they have good remaining inventory? And do they want to bring that inventory forward by drilling it? What are the, um, what is the market going to reward them for? And then what are the policymakers telling them? And the policymakers are really hostile. Um, they're likely out of some of their best drilling locations. They're moving on to some of their less good drilling locations. So I don't think many are too keen to accelerate that. 
And then the market is trading these guys so cheap that there's really no incentive to put money in the ground. You're much better off, you know, paying it out as a dividend uh, or giving it uh, or spending it as a share buyback. So none of these guys have really much of a signal to drill. And until you change that, you're not going to fix the problem at all. You're not going to fix it. And by helping the consumer, essentially you're encouraging demand, right? Without assisting supply, you're just exacerbating the problem, right? Kicking the can down the road a little bit, but making to it- to Totally. I mean, you know, it, that's exactly what you're doing. You're you're um, incentivizing demand. So you have, you know, if you go back to your economics textbooks, your supply curve shifts up. So at the same price, you know, your equilibrium volume goes down, and so you want to uh, subsidize demand uh, to help to help get you back to the same uh, the same quantity. But it does nothing. You know, it does absolutely nothing for the energy companies. And these guys these guys need that signal to drill. Uh, that's what we're calling it. Our new letters due out in a couple of days, and we're calling it all about the signal to drill. And they're not getting it. Now, the single, what we call the single well economics are really good. That's what's really unusual this time, is that normally the signal to drill comes or doesn't come from the oil price and the gas price. So the reason people lay down rigs normally is because the oil price falls so far that they can't make a strong enough return to do it. Okay. Usually policymakers are kind of on the sidelines, not one way or the other. And investors, you know, are typically in the stocks. And when the prices fall, they they trade at higher multiples of their net asset value, like cyclical cyclicals often do. In this case, this is the first time that I can remember where at today's oil and gas prices, you can make a mint drilling, you know, Permian well. Uh, even up in Canada, you can make a mint drilling a bunch of the um, Western Canadian sedimentary basin wells. Uh, however, by the time the market capitalizes those results in the form of your stock price, you would be better off. You know, I think six out of ten companies are better off buying back their stock than drilling, even though the oil price is telling you drill, 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 drill. Hmm. Um, and, and so that's what's a little bit strange. Uh, the question then is, why aren't investors willing to buy these companies? Um, to me, that's the opportunity, and that's why we are buying them. Uh, but you know, the oil price isn't going to bail you out of this. You know, it has to be investors coming back in, and it has to be the rhetoric that these oil companies are hearing from the policymakers. Uh, you know, extending the proverbial olive branch, then they'll feel more comfortable and start to redeploy capital into the ground. But you're not seeing those things happen, and so you're not seeing any increase in drilling. Hmm. Now, I, I gotta wonder. You know, a couple things. We talked about supporting the consumer in the United States, and a lot of the policy decisions are built around that. Whereas Maybe it's different in Europe. You mentioned the stoic mindset of the Germans essentially shuttering, I think you said 16 to 17% of their industry. In addition to just uh, you know public facing statements, one of my guests was on from, he's in Austria, his, uh, you know, they're being advised to start practicing cold showers and weird things like this to conserve energy, but to suppress demand, you know? Uh, what would it take? Could you could you imagine a scenario where that narrative starts coming out in the United States, where the administration has to acknowledge a point of weakness and say, "Look, it's time that we start practicing some energy austerity." Um, maybe let's go there first, and then I have a second question off of that. Well, look, I mean, first, you know, don't forget, it doesn't take much to convince the Germans, Austrians, and Brits to take cold showers. I think they're, <laughs> you know, half a step away from doing that, even when the 
energy supplies are flowing. I think the United States is a little bit different in the sense that we do have resource here. You know, if you do choose to drill, now it's a bigger question to talk longer term about whether the shales are beginning to deplete or not. And I think that's actually a really interesting point. But the truth of the matter is in, in a period of panic, in a short-term period, um, you know, you you we have resource that, that Europe doesn't. So Europe really is kind of out of out of options a little bit. You know, you, you look at what their menu is, there's more lead time. Now stuff won't turn back on overnight here either, but we do know where we would go. We do have the resource and we can, you know, and we have the oil service infrastructure, we have the drilling infrastructure. So I mean, we could turn stuff back on. So I don't know that we're gonna get quite as dramatic a but you know, never say never. So, but, but where I do think that things can be really painful in the United States is on price. So I think that we could lock the U.S. gas price, which is now eighty-five percent below the rest of the global natural gas price. We could begin to lock that into net global gas prices very, very quickly. But I don't think we have the risk of running out in quite the same way that Europe does. But I could be wrong. Okay. Now you asked a question. You said, "Why aren't investors buying these companies?" And then you said, "We're buying these companies, right?" You explained your case why, you know, um, I would speculate maybe one of the reasons is we're getting an abundance of headlines right now forecasting a globally coordinated depression, if not deep, deep recession, which would eventually just force the demand destruction that could suppress oil prices. Do you factor that? Like, talk to me about your, your view on that. Yeah, look, I, I think that people are definitely scared about that. Uh, and, and I think that that's definitely influencing both the oil price and the oil stocks. But, you know, I would point out that it's probably sort of momentum hedge funds and macro hedge funds and other, you know, quantitative funds that read headlines and things of that nature. I don't, I don't think it's the case that wealth advisors or institutions or even retail folks are out selling their oil stocks because they're worried of a recession only because they didn't really own them to begin with. You know, energy is a percent weighting in the S&P 500 is extremely low. Yeah. Most wealth advisors have their clients completely out of energy. It might be a little bit different up in Canada, uh, just because it's a little bit more of a natural, you know, resources are natural kind of part of the economy or of the market. But, you know, I think it's really been dramatic and and we just did an investor day last week and we had um this guy vivek ramaswamy on he wrote a book called woke inc and he talks all about esg distortions and stuff like that and one of the things that he said which i thought was really interesting it's so true you know you have these esg funds that have taken capital away from the extractive industry and that's a big number but you also have the implicit ESG policies that every large financial organization has taken on, right? So like the BMOs and RBCs up in Canada of the world, the JP Morgans and, and Merrill Lynch's and certainly uh, certainly State Street, Vanguard, Blackstone have all uh, taken the view that even if they're not ESG specific funds at a firm level, they're going to try to be more cognizant of environmental concerns, right? So, and that's trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Um, so I, I think the reason people, you know, aren't buying these stocks is because those pressures are all still in, in force. Um, so, and why are we buying them? Because look, if I tell you that all of the energy, not all, but, but, Many of the energy companies, and I could say the energy industry as a whole, as a sector, uh, based on the wells that they have, can make a good return. But based on the way the market's capitalizing them, they have no incentive to do that. Well, 
to me, that's a great investment. I mean, you could look at that and get depressed and say, why would I want to own these companies? You know, they don't have the incentive to drill, but just think of them as like, you know, a Warren Buffett private business. If I had to own this business forever, they can make great money drilling these wells and I can buy it at really, really cheap valuations. So something will come around. If it doesn't come around, I guess I'll be the last shareholder after they've, you know, bought back all of their stock or whatever. Um, either way, I'm okay with that. Uh, these, these guys, if you look at them, and, and you try to really analyze each company, I think there's some companies out there with some really good remaining assets that are really cheap uh, in a market where we're going to need a lot more investment into this space. So what what triggers people to realize that? I don't know. I've been I've been wondering that for years, but but it's there. And um, for us anyway, we think it's it's a good advantage to to, to be buying those. Okay. I want to double back on that and see uh, and ask some questions, but First, you mentioned as a sort of course of policy, governments are trying to offer alternatives in terms of energy production, like spinning up more windmills, is what you said. Simultaneously, I know before we sat down, you said maybe one thing the public is misinterpreting is the role of renewables in the future. And so can you elaborate on that misinterpretation, what's been promised, what's been expected, and what might actually come to fruition? Sure. And I should just point out, you know, for for Full disclosure, we bought a lot of our energy stocks, you know, in 2020 and 2021. So I shouldn't, you know, if we get inflows, we'll buy energy stocks, but we're not selling out our rest of our portfolio to buy more energy stocks right now. We do have about 50% of our fund in, in oil and gas stocks, and that that's a pretty full position for us. So I just want to yeah. be clear when I say we're buying, we, we, we're we owning, I guess, is, is the more correct you. answer. Yeah, um, so, you know, the misconceptions around renewables, I mean, there's many, but what they really come down to is the energy efficiency of renewable energy is really, really, really poor. What I mean by that is whether you're talking about a windmill, a solar panel, an oil well, or a coal uh, mine, which then goes into a power plant, you release energy. That's what that's the job of all of those fuels. We're fairly agnostic. I mean, environmentally, we want it to be clean and stuff like that, but it's all fungible. It comes down the wires in electricity or you know, gets burned and creates heat uh, and, and propels forward motion and stuff like that. So you can try to look at how efficient those sources of energy are. What do we mean by that? How much energy does it take to liberate the amount of energy that comes out, the energy in relative to the energy out? And we call that the energy return on investment. And going back a few years ago, you know, we we run a fund, it's a resources fund. In our mandate, we could easily own wind companies and solar companies. So it's not like we're an oil fund where you know we're sort of stuck in our legacy positions or whatever and have to toe the line. We could have easily sold all of our energy stocks and bought you know windmill companies and stuff like that. And some days it would have been a hell of a lot easier to do that because they went up every day and our stuff went down every day. But the problem was we decided to really dig in and do some of the research and say, look, do these technologies make sense? Can they provide efficient baseload sorts of power sources of power at energy efficient uh, rates? And the answer to that is is unequivocally no. And if you go back and you look over history, and and there's a professor at the University of Manitoba that Bill Gates always talks about. His name is Vaclav Smil. He writes really well on all this. I'd recommend people go and his books are accessible. They they're, they're not too technical. They're they're pretty good reads. Energy and Civilization is a particularly uh, entertaining one. I think one he wrote about the dietary trends of Imperial Japan in the sixth century. I, I might steer clear of that one, but <laughs> Energy and Civilization <laughs> is a pretty good one. Right. And 
And he talks about how we've gone from one source of energy to another, to another, to another over time. And they're always more efficient than what they replace. And that's something that we really, you know, we're keen to understand are wind and solar any good. And the truth of the matter is they're awful and they're really, really bad before you have to buffer them. Uh, but then of course they get even worse after you buffer them. And what I mean by buffer is that, you know, solar, you know, doesn't generate power when the sun's not shining, which is, you know, 12 hours a day. And so you have to find some way to back that up. Now, most people choose that they want to back it up they, using batteries, right? That's the way that you can get to a fully green um, baseload yeah. base power base load source. Yeah. But the problem, of course, is the batteries in and of themselves are super energy intensive. You have to mine the cobalt in the Congo. You have to mine nickel in laterites in Indonesia. You have to then uh, put them all together in an aqueous solution and dry it to make a paste. You know, how do you dry a liquid? You know, you, you blast hot air over it. These are energy intensive manufacturing and extractive processes. And when you layer that on, um, you're talking about energy efficiencies that are like 80 to 90% worse than what you're getting from uh, oil and natural gas and coal. So to me, they're just not feasible. And we've gone down this path now for so long. Uh, and to do something that's really, really, really inefficient and unfeasible. And why did we do it? Because from a starting point, we had cheap, abundant energy, right? If you go back 10 years ago you know, to 2010, 2011, everyone was worried in the 10 years prior to that, that we weren't going to have enough energy to meet China's insatiable demand. Well, right when we thought we were really uh, in trouble, we came away with the shales. We brought on the equivalent of two Saudi Arabias inside of five years, the most monumental 10-year period in the history of energy, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and we had this seemingly endless source of cheap available power. It's the same as interest rates. If you have cheap capital, you don't have to make good investment decisions. You can invest in uh, companies that won't generate cash flow for 30 years because your discount rate is so low. You know, the capital is basically free. You can misallocate it and it doesn't immediately become apparent. When energy is really, really cheap, you can misallocate the energy and it doesn't necessarily become immediately apparent. But in the same way, as cheap capital distorts capital flows and over 10, 12 years, you end up in a pretty bad spot. The same is true with energy. Cheap energy distorts energy flows. And after about a decade, you have a real problem. And that's where we are today. Um, I'm not at all um, skeptical of climate change. I think that you know we, we put too much CO2 into the atmosphere. Uh, and I think we need to address that. I just take issue with how we're addressing it. It makes no sense to me. It's going to not help the CO2 problem. You know, I mean, look, look at Germany. No one spent more money than Germany on wind and solar. They're burning coal and wood. You know, it's like, it's not different than what they did in the 16th century. Wild. Um, you know, so this is not the way to go. Yeah. You know, I appreciate your perspective on the renewable front because you shine a light on, on the fact that maybe renewable is a terrible descriptor for this energy source. And what I mean is like, I believe we can solve the baseload equivalent issue by eventually creating about a battery that can actually store a mass amount of energy and hold it. We're really good at solving problems technologically over time. Like humans are very good at innovating. And so I think it's a tech problem that will get solved, but so what? Well, then you have, you find the formula, right? That can actually store copious amounts of energy for long periods of time. Then you have to manufacture that at scale, right? And you mentioned cobalt, lithium, vanadium, manganese, like the list of metals you have to extract and manufacture those and then, and then manufacture them at an obscene scale 
to make things like wind and solar baseload equivalent. There's nothing renewable about that, nothing at all, right? Maybe no, no, nothing at all. Wind and, itself, and, but like, come on. Yeah, but you know, it, it it it's bizarre because to your point, you know, you have to replace these things, and then the major problem with batteries, and, and there's sort of this view that like once we get all the windmills up, then we'll just have endless power forever. So it almost doesn't matter how bad it is between now and then. Let's just get there. And then we never have to worry about this again. But right. these things last 20 to 25 years. You know, yeah. so you're on a cycle like anything else. You know, you go you go into any of these uh, solar facilities and the amount of breakage in them is unbelievable. You go to these wind farms and the amount of repairs and just outright uh, abandon is really, really high. So the you're right. The wind is the renewable resource, but the huge amounts, you know, the 900 tons of steel and 2,200 tons of concrete to capture that wind gust is very, very, very much uh, spent. Yeah. You know, and, and, and people just don't, people just don't appreciate that. Um, You know, the, the amount of energy that is in a single Permian oil well is the same as 10 windmills, each standing that, height of a 30-story building and that's that's intermittent and then you have to buffer that right. you know so it's just it's not the it's not the way to go um now we do have technologies that are the way to go and i think that's the biggest problem with renewables is that it's taken our eye off of what you know some of these true issues are um and the way to go is nuclear power it's it's really energy efficient um just to put some numbers on it energy and energy out oil and gas is roughly 30 to 1 Wind and solar is like four to one, is again as bad as two to one. Nuclear power is a hundred to one. And the new generation of nuclear reactors they're working on is almost two hundred to one. You know, so these are like off the charts. And and so I'm actually I've gone from being, you know, a little bit salty and 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 pessimistic about all this to to an optimist because I if the end of this decade, you know, the the lessons learned uh, are that we've embraced nuclear in a safe, reliable. Uh, an extremely efficient way, then in retrospect, you know, I suppose this renewables um, mess will will have been worthwhile. You know, will have gotten us to the right place at the end. But that's where we need to get to, and and our best days lie ahead if we can appreciate that. And we're moving that direction. I mean, public sentiment in just the last decade towards nuclear, in just the last three years towards nuclear, has shifted dramatically. Right? Yeah. I mean, this was uh, it was a technology that the world seemed to be petrified of, and we go right to Three Mile Island and go right to uh, Fukushima and go right to, um, uh, what was the Russian, I can't remember. Chernobyl. Chernobyl, right? And they made an amazing documentary about it. Like, you know, ca- catastrophic, I suppose, but very, very infrequent. But more importantly, you know, if public sentiment is shifting to favor nuclear or recognize it as, you know, a clean, uh, highly powerful and affordable source of energy, the barrier is still the timeline to actually get these plants in place. And there's- Oh, absolutely. Right. And so what's no, it- No two ways about it. The, yeah. the, this is all long lead time stuff. Long you know, as well as, as as well it should be, you know, we should take care that, that we build these things properly. And, and we can talk about, you know, right now people are building what are known as third generation nuclear reactors. That's basically the same design incremental improvements, same design that we've been building for 30, 40 years. Okay. Um, we're on the verge of moving to fourth generation nuclear reactors, and there's a few companies that are doing it. Uh, in a lot of ways, Canada has been up at, out at the leader on that. They don't, I don't think they really own a good leadership position in the industry right now, but they've been, you know, having that, that 
can do reactor um, for, I don't know, 25 years. But nuclear reactor design has really been interesting. It's almost impossible to permit new reactor designs. It takes a lot of time and effort. And because the regulatory scrutiny is so, so, so tight. uh, But what you're looking at now is technology that was first proposed, you know, 50 years ago, uh, and it basically involves moving away from water to cool your reactor and moving towards salt. And the nice thing about salt is that salt boils at about 200 degrees C, but doesn't, uh, sorry, melts at 200 degrees C, but doesn't boil until about 900 degrees C. Now the reactor core typically releases heat at 500 degrees C. So the the liquid salt, the molten salt can absorb all of the heat coming off the reactor and never risk boiling away, never risk melting down. It can just take all of that heat coming off. It's like if, I don't know, I guess if you put like a, like a coal, you know, off your barbecue, like in a big pot of water, the water can absorb all the heat off of that coal and it'll cool it down. What we have now uh, is we use water to cool this uh, reactor core. So the reactor is at 500 Water obviously boils at 100. And so the only way you can keep the water from boiling off and the thing from melting down is you keep the whole thing under pressure, the same way like the radiator in your car is under pressure. And that's why, you know, the steam or the water in your radiator and the liquids in your radiator can go up to a couple hundred degrees C without boiling away is because it's under pressure. That means capital costs go up. It means the steel that you need to use is super precise. There's a lot of stress on a lot of the joints. Now, the industry still does an amazing job keeping that safe you know in 60 years of nuclear power there's been three incidences three mile island actually nothing really happened there's no major release uh fuka chernobyl was a unique one because that was actually a weapons plant so it had no civilian safety in there whatsoever didn't even have a containment vessel around the core uh and then and then fukushima which was a really bizarre design choice whereby your backup to pump water to keep that reactor cold, your backup, if you're not connected to the grid, were these diesel generators that were below the water line. So if you had a flood that knocked out your power, they also knocked out your diesel gen sets. Seems really, really strange. But nevertheless, you know, those are in 60 years, those are the three incidences. No, nothing major has happened other than Chernobyl, which was really a weapons program and not a power reactor anyway. Um, but these new ones, you know, you almost can't melt them down. Uh, because the 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 coolant that that's absorbing all that heat, you know, again, it's like your coal in your pot of water. The water doesn't boil off. You know, mm. the water can absorb all of the heat coming off of the heat source, and then the whole thing just kind of cools down on its own. So, really, really safe. What they're coming away with, really cheap. Because once you take the pressures down, you know, you don't have to have high pressure to keep that from boiling away. You don't have to have all that cement and all that steel and all those big weld joints. Those all go away. So there's really exciting things that are coming in the next several years. Interesting. Okay, now I want to pivot back to oil and gas for a second. Um, And knowing, you know, you can probably only talk your book to a degree. So whatever you're comfortable with. But if someone's looking to add exposure to the oil and gas sector, let's say they have none. Let's start there, right? Um, and they, they feel like they need some, and they want to start dollar cost averaging in, in a couple directions to a couple ideas, where would you point or advise an individual start looking for good ideas? Sure. Well, yeah, I'm happy to talk, you know, most of this or all of this is, is publicly disclosed. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying anything that, that hasn't been disclosed before and, um, you know, all the disclaimers and caveats and stuff like that, but I'll, I'll talk generally and then I can give some examples. So 
we like we favor the US E&P companies so the independent exploration and production companies these guys you know are what you think of when you think of a classic oil company they don't own refiners they don't own gas stations they just find oil drill it and and sell it mm-hmm. um in that you have to be a little bit careful you need to look for companies that have high quality remaining asset bases because a lot of these guys are suffering from some depletion problems and you have to look for companies that have good balance sheets so that you know if oil prices um you know if 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 there's a ceasefire in Russia and the Ukraine i'm sure oil will sell off and the oil stocks will sell off temporarily but nevertheless you know so you want to make sure that they can weather stuff that you might not expect um and then uh you know don't want to pay too much for them now luckily that last one isn't so much of a concern these days because stocks are pretty cheap uh, we tend to favor guys in the Permian with good remaining acreage. We own a company called Pioneer Natural Resources, a company called Matador Diamondback. Uh, we own a company called PDC Energy, which is in the uh, Wattenberg trend in the DJ Basin. Um, you know, so and and these are basically our core energy names that we've owned for quite some time. So we haven't really made too many changes. I think we are happy with the ones we own. We're happy with the asset quality there and the managements, and you know. And, and we're good owning those. Um, the other thing that that one could do, and, and we're not doing, and I think is problematic, is owning you know the big integrated guys like the Exxons, Chevron, Shells, Totals, BPs. And the reason we're concerned about those uh, is that they all really have a bit of a target on their back from governments, from activist investors. So what we're seeing there is we're seeing a lot of those big integrated guys. Uh, move into renewables projects to kind of you know make themselves look more presentable and you know you know look better in polite company and stuff like that. And the smaller ENP companies like we might own, they're under pressures too, not as bad. And what they're doing is they're kind of returning money to shareholders by dividends and share buybacks. So neither value accretive or destructive, right? They're just giving us the money back and we're investing it back in them for the most part. Uh, with the um, larger guys, they're actually taking that excess cash flow that they're generating and they're investing it in things that we wouldn't invest in, like wind and solar and hydrogen, biofuels, stuff that's all really energy intensive and not very economic. So I think there's some value destruction happening there. I'd be a little bit careful about that. Now, if oil prices go up, will Exxon go up? Probably. But I think Mm -hmm. that there's some more value destructive behaviors taking place because of the pressures of activist investors and governments. Um, and then the interesting one for your Canadian listeners is what do you do with the Canadian energy stocks? Because they're really cheap. If the U.S. guys have had a tough go, the Canadian guys have had an even tougher go of it. Uh, I would tend to think in general, on average, the asset quality has probably been a little bit better in the U.S. You know, There's been a lot of hope and promise for tight reservoirs in Western Canada, but they haven't really been able to compete with, you know, the best Permian and stuff like that. So, but they're really, really cheap. And I think there's some really attractive opportunities. So we don't own any Canadian names, but that's always an area that we're, that we're, we have in the past big time. And, you know, we might again in the future. Interesting. And you touched on, uh, you touched on biofuels and hydrogen, just, just as a, as a, as a, you mentioned them. So yeah. Any any promising technology outside of you know the the wind and solar, which we hear so much about, but like you know geothermal, biofuels, hydrogen, any of that capture your interest? As in maybe one day this could be a winner, or do you at this point think you haven't seen anything that excites you? No. Nope. <laughs> um, look, I'll, I'll 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 tell you why. Take hydrogen, okay? Hydrogen. Yeah. Hydrogen sounds great. It's you know completely clean. 
it, it has tailpipes emissions, which is pure water. You know, I mean, it's yeah. just wow, like what a, what a fantastic you know optics story and whatever. Instead of instead of all this um, socks and knocks coming out of your tailpipe, you're getting just drinking water. Um, now the problem is that hydrogen doesn't exist in nature alone. It exists in nature bound together with oxygen in the form of water. So the way that you can um, create hydrogen, I take that back. Mostly it comes in the form bound together with hydrogen. It can also be bound together with carbon, which is natural gas. Mm. Okay. And so you can create hydrogen one of two ways. You can either burn natural gas to break the bonds between carbon and hydrogen and try to save the hydrogen. The problem is that that generates CO2, right? So it's, it, that's really not different than just burning natural gas. Uh, the second would be to use electricity to split the bonds between hydrogen and oxygen in the form of water to create hydrogen gas and oxygen gas. The oxygen you just vent, that's fine. No one cares. That, that's good. And the hydrogen you use in your hydrogen process. The problem is that to break that bond requires energy. To break mm. the bond between carbon and hydrogen and natural gas releases energy. To release the bond between hydrogen and oxygen requires energy. And it requires how much? It's like, I don't know, it's almost like 20% of the total energy that you put in. So that's lost the minute that you start down the hydrogen path. Then it's a gas and it's a really light gas. And so you have to compress it down into a liquid form or cool it down. Uh, that consumes like another 20% of the energy. Then you transport it and then you run it back through the electrolyzer and that consumes another, you know, that's only 80% efficient. Potentially getting better. Like the other sources, you, you're not going to get better at them. You can't get better splitting the bonds of hydrogen and oxygen. We've been doing it since middle or high school chemistry class. You know, it's you're, you, we've known about how to do this for hundreds of years. You're not going to get better at that. It's hard to get better at cooling and compressing things. We do that a lot. You know, the, the fuel cell itself, can you get the efficiency up? Maybe a little bit, but you're still losing, you know, anywhere between 60 and 80% of the total energy that you put in coming out the other side. And what energy do you want to put in? If you use coal to generate electricity to run in hydrogen, it's like, why? You know, just, just stick with gasoline and diesel. So presumably you want to use wind and solar, or one of these clean sources to avoid yeah. CO2 throughout. But then you're at the problem where you need to have this super inefficient source of energy, which is creating this really small trickle of energy at the, at the end of it and then you're squandering 70% of that and to think that we're going to you know to think that we're going to um solve our world's energy problems like that it, it's crazy I'll, I'll i'll have a very stereotypical example i'm from quebec so i can make examples like this it would be like if you're trying to get maple syrup out of a maple tree and you get that just that tiny little bit of of, of syrup out and then you run around with buckets that have holes in them and you lose 70 percent of that getting it you know back into the processing facility yeah, this yeah. is not the way to run your maple syrup factory <laughs> and it's not the way to run our energy supply either all right so you've seen some of these projects like right now i'm getting pitched on a, uh, a promoter who's got a coal deposit. It's lignite coal, which is, I guess, the worst kind of coal. You don't want to burn it. And um, they're, they're pitching a underground gasification plant to then convert to hydrogen. Um, you know, to me, it looked like a pie in the sky, 20-year sort of vision. Like, how are you going to yeah. build this infrastructure? And it's in Canada where we don't have that infrastructure right now. Uh, you've seen these projects before, gasifying coal instead of burning yep. it. Yeah. Yeah, it they're all really really tricky, you know. I think I think some of the stuff that that I do like, um, you know, I I were big advocates 
for switching from coal to gas where you can. Now you can't do it now because we have a global gas shortage, but I would be very much in favor of trying to incentivize gas development and switching away from coal to gas. Like gas has the same efficiency as coal on an EROI basis with half the CO2. So that, that's a big step, you know, like you same efficiency, half the CO2, like that, that's really good. Um, and yet for some reason we don't want to do that because I think people feel like that's just, that's taking us farther away from the end goal of wind and solar. But if you don't think that's the end goal, then that becomes a really attractive step to do for now. Uh, I think that nuclear, particularly this fourth generation nuclear, which really has very, very little in the way of waste and in the way of capital cost and in the way of operational uh, concerns, you know, I think that um, that's a good thing that we should be that we should be pursuing aggressively. And I think that the cheapest way for if we want to pay to reduce carbon, like if we want to do carbon taxes and stuff like that, which I'm not, I have mixed feelings on. And the reason I have mixed feelings on all that is I think it's a good way to allocate, um, you know, or price a negative externality, right? So the idea that people pollute and they emit CO2 and no one, you know, it affects everyone, but no one is uh, held responsible for it. So you put a cat, you put a tax on that. And at least now you can allocate that harm to the people that really need to emit it. And the people that don't, you know, can, can properly adjust. The issue that I have is that it's all kind of made up. Uh, and if we do end up in a real tough energy crisis, you know, I would think that that gets thrown out the window pretty quickly, right? Cause it's just is imposed by, by us. I, I'm more interested in looking at things that are actually economically and physically more efficient and could potentially reduce carbon because that doesn't need a subsidy or anything like that. But if you wanted to just remove carbon for the cheapest energy cost and the cheapest dollar cost, the thing to do is to reforest. You know, that that's really, yeah. really, really cheap uh, and it's really effective. And instead we're cutting down old growth forests to burn in Germany, right? So it's like, it, it, you just can't make this stuff up. Wild, you know what? And uh, I feel like we're going to find out if that carbon industry, the carbon credit industry, gets tossed out the window in the next couple of years. Here, um, and I take a, quite a hard look at it this year, right? There's quite a few companies that have, you know, interesting business models and worth a look, anyways. Look, like, like, like I said, you know, as far as a mechanism to allocate carbon economically, it should work. Uh, the the problem is that it requires um, us all to hold ourselves to account and. You know, the the environment has been very favorable for that. And I would worry, you know, as far as investing in carbon and stuff like that, which we don't do, I would worry that, you know, it, it could just be with a stroke of a pen effectively reduced to zero. That That's my concern there. It's not that it's not that you wouldn't end up with an efficient outcome. You would, uh, but it's just, um, you know. All right. I know you got to jump, Adam. Look, this has been super fun. I'm really glad you could make the time and we can make this happen. So thank you. Of course. Yeah. I really enjoyed talking with you and hope to talk to you again soon. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.